1: Well, hello there, my fellow wrong thinker. Glad you could join me today. Got a lot to talk about in this hour. I want to mention our sponsors, HSLMO.com, also Pure-Light.com, College.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. You've probably heard me talk a little bit about the importance of food storage over the years. If you've decided, hey, maybe I need to step it up, maybe this would be a good time, to, I don't know, start small, 72 hours worth, maybe a week's worth, go to lifesavingfood.com. I've thoughtfully included links to all of these sponsors in the show notes at the show.com Boy, there's a lot of dot coms here. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm stuck in a rut. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this, but for the, for the sake of people who might be hearing this for the first time, valuing truth over comfort is never going to be easy. In fact, one of the biggest places where you see the the pushback or the reaction to people encountering truth and it it conflicting with their comfort is when we encounter ideas that challenge our preconceptions. Now, look, every one of us is going to run into things that we may find either difficult or unpleasant or just outright inconvenient to consider. Doesn't matter. That's part of being a grown up in this old world. Sorry, I wish there was a way around it. But if you want to be the kind of person who can apprehend the truth, who can apply the truth, who can carry the truth to the people around you, you cannot be hunkered down inside some kind of mental bunker that limits your ability to recognize truth. That means you're going to have to risk being uncomfortable sometimes. You're going to have to encounter ideas that may challenge preconceptions. That's not such a bad thing either. You know, it's not like uh, it's not like on your world will fall apart. You'll be ruined just staring at your shoes for the rest of the day once you consider a bad idea. Now, we're a little more resilient than that. And in fact, throughout the history of humanity, billions of minds working over thousands of years of recorded history have actually done some pretty good work on, you know, figuring out what works and what doesn't. Let me give you an example of what doesn't work. Got this email from Tom Woods earlier today. And I had seen a tweet on this earlier. I really hadn't given it a lot of thought. But when when I when this landed in my email inbox, I was like, okay, let me take a closer look. And I'm glad I did. Because the American Booksellers Association just released this statement on Twitter. Quote, an anti-trans book was included in our July mailing to members. This is a serious, violent incident that goes against ABA's ends policies. Values and everything we believe and support. It is inexcusable. We apologize to our trans members and to the trans community for this terrible incident and the pain we caused them. We also apologize to the LGBTQIA plus community at large and to our bookselling community. Apologies are not enough. We've begun addressing this today and are committed to engaging in the critical dialogue needed to inform concrete steps to address the harm we caused. Those steps will be shared in the next three weeks. Oh my goodness! What on earth did they do to have to issue an apology like this? Holy cow! I wonder what that book, that anti-trans book, was all about. Well, Tom Wood says, "Hey, I had no—I have no idea what dissident title made its way into the uh, ABA's mailing. I wish I could remember it. Um, It's—it's a female author." This book has been out for a little bit, and all it does is it presents another side to the whole, you know, gender is whatever you think it is at the moment versus, uh, you know, does this really stack up against scientific biological evidence that has been accepted, you know, for for many thousands of years or not? In other words, this was not, you know, Mein Kampf 2.0. We must start by killing all of the homosexuals and sexual deviants. No, nothing of the sort. So I I wish I could remember the name. I'll have to see if I can find it. But whatever the thesis, Tom Woods says, the book has been propagandistically reduced to the descriptor anti-trans. No need to evaluate its arguments because we know a priori that it can't have any arguments. Well, that doesn't seem cultish or ideological at all, says Tom Woods. This is the part, though, that grabbed me. And I think he's right to point this at this one and say, look, this is a problem. We're told this was a violent incident. Now he says this is the classic leftist redefinition of words. Actual violence is not violence, but dissenting from the Borg, oh, that's violence. A summer of violent protest isn't violent, that's just the allegedly powerless making their voices heard. But someone sending out a notice about a book that challenges your preconceptions, why, that's exactly the same as having your teeth kicked in. Not to mention, why should this require an apology to anyone, much less the LGBTQIA plus community at large? Now, Tom Wood says, look, everywhere I turn, I'm confronted by people and in institutions that despise me. Corporate America, the universities, the entertainment world, the media, and so on. Those who need an apology when a single dissent book makes it past the gatekeepers would not survive 10 minutes in my shoes, he says. And he's right. He says, remember when crazy ideas like this, you know, sending out a notice about an unfashionable book is violence with the province of a few isolated nuts in the universities. Well, now we're reaching the point many of us feared where these ideas have escaped those mad scientist laboratories and made it out into society. Now, as hard as this may sound like, oh, so uh, you, you want us to, uh, you know, to put the squeeze on these people who believe this way, the, the, the perpetually offended Nah, that's not what I'm suggesting. Here's what I am suggesting. Don't be one of those people. Because really, look at it. That's the only thing you and I have absolute, concrete, and legitimate control over. We can choose to be perpetually offended in everything and looking for a reason to be offended. You did not use the proper pronouns, and now you're, you know, you're offending me because you're even trying to comprehend something that I'm scolding you for. please. Let people who feel the need to express themselves that way um, somehow find their way to a Dale Carnegie course and learn how to win friends and influence people. Don't be one of them. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to, you know, shut up and sit over there and, you know, try not to try not to get involved. Adults are speaking. Your voice is desperately needed. Seriously. You need to be the kind of person who can be counted on to have an honest take on what's going on around you. But you can't live in that mental universe where you would describe, well, an idea that disagrees with something that I believe is considered violence. I mean, it's it's like the meme. I don't know where it came from. It's from some television show. But there's a girl with a very sad face. And the, the caption says, stop violating me with your different opinions. <laughs> That's where we are as a society. How sad is it that you know the the people are being trained that no no this is a totally normal and natural way to be and you know you have an absolute right to stand up for yourself and throw a temper tantrum and have a meltdown because somebody disagreed with you look i've i pointed this out many times on this program um, you kind of have to experience it to believe it but when tom wood says hey you folks wouldn't last a minute in my shoes he's not kidding And this is true of any person who stands up for the truth, and I don't care if it's on the large stage or if it's on a much smaller stage, if you are a person who has values in your life, not just preferences, but values for which you feel like, hey, I can't compromise my values here, you're going to suffer for your beliefs. It's not because you're a bad person and it's not because you're a troublemaker. And I know there are people who will try to tell you though, this and, and actually will try to make you feel as if, you know, well, you know, you, you made someone feel offended. Oh, what was the thing I saw the other day? It was a guy sitting at a table at a, at a cafe or a coffee shop somewhere. And someone had tweeted a picture of this guy sitting there just reading a book or looking at his phone or whatever. He's not doing anything. But the woman who was taking a picture of him is like, I asked him to put a mask on and, and he refused. And, and now he's just sitting there knowing that I'm upset and not doing anything about it. Now, if that sounds like rational, normal behavior of an adult to you, I don't know what to tell you. Because I think to most reasonable people, they'd be like, wow, that's that's very childish. I'm sitting here upset, and he's not doing anything about it. Don't be that person. Don't be the person who is is so dependent on having control over other people that you have to bend them to your will in order to be okay. It's okay if somebody disagrees with you. In fact, people will be glad to tell you, you know, hardly anybody agrees with, with what you're saying here. And the beauty of a person who is truly liberty-minded is they can say, that's fine. My belief system doesn't require them to agree with me. See, it's supposed to get a reaction out of you. It's supposed to put you on the defensive. If you're comfortable in your viewpoint, if you know where you stand, that kind of voodoo does not work.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian
1: Hyde show. All right, welcome back to the show. Please feel free to check out the show notes at the Look, I'm not trying to give you homework. I'm not trying to make your life more complicated. I know you you probably already have plenty on your plate. But if you are a person who is serious about understanding the world around us, and even more particularly, knowing where you stand so that, you know, if you need to do some lifting where you're standing, you're capable of doing so. One of the best ways to do that is to go dig a little bit deeper on the various topics that we bring up for discussion here, the various guests that I have on do your own research, original research, and original sources really are one of the best ways, or two of the best ways, to to get your mind around a subject and not be, uh, you know, beholden to somebody else to spoon feed it. Now, here's what this means, and this is what you're supposed to think about that. See, I trust you. Unlike others, I trust you to be smart enough to make up your own mind. and And I'm okay if you disagree with me. You know what? I'm going to be just fine, and so are you. It's not required. What's necessary, though, is that we be willing to go beyond just the superficial. Well, I read the headline. I'm pretty sure I understand what that was all about. And not every issue is worth your time. I mean, you know, I I shouldn't, I'm I'm belaboring the point that I probably shouldn't even be doing. But it's easy to immerse yourself in a lot of negativity, trying to stay up on the news. So I stopped watching mainstream news and reading mainstream news a long time ago. In fact, to the, to the point now, when I look at to various headlines, I'm like, ah, that one's trying to get me to click. It's trying to appeal to my fear or it's trying to appeal to anger to try to get me to click on it. And I have to admit, there's some pretty talented people out there writing and, you know, positioning these things to try to get eyeballs on those uh, web pages or people to listen to what they're saying or views but I kind of pride myself on being the kind of person who um, if it's not providing real value for me like real perspective or understanding I absolutely claim the prerogative to say yeah no thanks <laughs> I'll look for other things that are more interesting to me I actually have a good friend and Keith I don't hold you I don't hold you personally you know like oh you're a bad person for thinking this but uh, my friend Keith thinks that uh, He's pretty sure that uh, what I'm doing is is just not forceful enough, or not engaged enough in the cause of liberty. In fact, I think he kind of kind of looks at it as well, Brian. You know what you're doing is pretty much just kind of taking a vacation or taking a break and stepping away from the fray. No, not at all. Anyone who knows me knows that uh, I'm very active in supporting the principles and practices of liberty, as I as many people who I know are in sometimes in big ways that other people can see, oftentimes in smaller ways. My point is simply this. Go about it the best way that you know how. If it's a better way, trust me, your, your influence, your example is going to show other people. You will be able to convince us that, oh, hey, that seems to get things done, or this has, you know, bigger splash than what I'm currently doing. But don't go condemning people because well you're not part of my crusade therefore you must be wrong or you're you're shirking your duty because we're not maybe we're working on this pro- this problem from different angles but we each have our part to play that much I know play your part I'll play mine let's see where it goes from here one of the things that I have learned to be very cautious about is the use of dehumanizing language. There's a great article. This is from Quillette.com, and it's from Clifton Ross, The Language of Totalitarian Dehumanization. He says, about a week before the massive protests erupted in Cuba, I was celebrating the 4th of July at a friend's house in Oakland, California, and listening to her tell me stories about her adventures there. Now, she is a Jewish red diaper baby and seems to identify as some sort of libertarian socialist. He says, I found myself squirming as she enthused about the left radicals she knows and lamented the persecution of communists in the U.S. During the years of McCarthyite paranoia, American communists did indeed have their reputations, careers, and occasionally their lives ruined. A few were sent to prison, and in 1953, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were convicted of spying for Stalin and executed. Now... He says, I want to point out that the persecution of communists by communists during the Cold War was far worse and that the Rosenbergs were in fact guilty, unlike the millions of people murdered or worked to death in gulags by Stalin for allegedly operating as Trotskyist uh, or Western agents or spies. Still, he says, I was a guest in my friend's home, so I held my tongue. But when she referred to opponents of the regime in Havana as gosanos, worms, I felt I had to object. And he says, my hostess responded with a puzzled look and then blithely continued with her story. Now, he says, I left shortly after that, still angered. Why do Western radicals, especially those with a romantic interest in Latin America and a strong affinity for the Cuban Revolution, think it's okay to dehumanize those with whom they disagree? He says, my friend would no doubt be offended to hear communists or Jews described in those terms but believes it's a perfectly acceptable way to describe those who, after all, are simply agitating for the rights and freedoms she's fortunate enough to enjoy. He says, During my own years as a pro-Cuban communist sympathizer, I'm ashamed to admit I used the same pejorative. I rarely gave it a second thought since I considered those who opposed Castro's noble project to be diabolical, so it seemed self-evidently appropriate. Linguistic assaults, Haig Bosmajan reminds us in his book, The Language of Oppression, are often used by persons who show no visible evil intent. And so the author notes it was January 1st, 1994, that I took my first trip to Cuba as part of uh, a Mexican tour. I was the only gringo. And he says, on my first day there, a furtive encounter in a hallway alcove of the hotel in which we were staying changed everything. One of the maids spotted me alone and called me aside. Looking around to ensure no one was listening, she whispered, You're from the USA, right? I nodded. She smiled and handed me a napkin on which she'd written a name and a telephone number. Please call my sister when you return, she whispered. Tell her I'm okay and that I'll be coming as soon as I can. Now, he says, I must have looked perplexed because she elaborated. We have no way of getting in contact with family in the U.S. She asked me to do as I promised. She asked me to promise I would do as she asked, and when I did, she thanked me and hurried away. Now, this Gosana wasn't the monstrous counter-revolutionary imagined by regime propaganda. She was a kind and frightened person moved by desperation to ask a complete stranger for a simple favor that might have landed her in serious trouble had I betrayed her. Here was a degree of intimacy to which I wasn't accustomed. Western tourists in the developing world rarely manage to understand the deepest concerns of the people they meet, most of whom are preoccupied with finding ways to part us with our money, the porters, waiters, salespersons, guides, street vendors, and those trapped in the informal economy. Yet here was someone with no ulterior motive beseeching me to help her contact a member of her family. And he says, in this instance, there was no sob story, no grift, just a person risking everything to give me her trust. And he asks, how did she know she could trust me? Notwithstanding my sympathy for Castroism at the time, she intuited that I would be receptive to her plea. Cubans have developed a peculiar sixth sense about tourists. Usually they can employ this ability to leverage some cash. A lapse in judgment can result in a visit from the police. So it's a skill they've had to hone in the name of survival. Now, they certainly can't depend on their wages or ration cards. Cynical? Well, of course. But he says, of necessity, the necessity and poverty bred by communism are among the most effective teachers of free market capitalism available. And in this case, the Cubans had to be quick studies. He says, "On the over the course of that first week in 1994... I met many Cubans on the street with postcards or contraband they'd stolen from their work, workplaces, trying to make a little money from tourists. Or doctors whose monthly wages amounted to less than $50, driving taxis to make enough money to feed their families. And he says, each time one of these people confided in me, invariably in a low murmur, for fear of vigilant eyes and ears about the horrors of life under the regime, he says, I felt humbled and ashamed. How could I have supported this despotism for so long? And yet he's still agonized about whether or not to keep his promise to the hotel maid. I'll tell you what he did after these messages. This
0: is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde
1: Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you an article. This is from com. It's written by Clifton Ross, and it has to do with the, and a very enlightening take on the language of totalitarian dehumanization. Specifically, he talks about how a friend of his, in referring to the uh, protests going on in Cuba, referred to those, uh, uh, what would you call them? Anyway, the anti-communist protesters as worms. And it struck him because he was once very sympathetic to Castroism. And yet he was approached at the, in the you know hallway of this hotel by a Cuban maid who whispered as she looked about, you're an American, right? And gave him a phone number and a name and said, please call my sister. Tell her we're okay, but we're going to make it there as quickly as we can. Because we have no way of contacting family in the U.S. And yet he says, I agonized about whether or not to keep that promise. To the hotel mate, he says, I'm sure I thought of throwing her napkin away. Carrying her message back to the U.S. was surely a betrayal of the Cuban revolution. But, he said, wouldn't it be far worse to betray her trust? In the end, he says, I brought the napkin home and eventually telephoned the girl's sister, or the woman's sister, rather, in uh, Miami. She was delighted to get my call, and after I delivered the message, we talked she told me of her own anguish living under the Cuban dictatorship and how she'd fled to Florida where she awaited the arrival of more family members. He says, I remember listening and saying very little, but when I hung up, I felt certain I had done the right thing. And then he says, I've often wondered why it took me so long to learn the obvious lessons of my experiences in Cuba that January. But he says, they did prevent, or they did prepare me rather somewhat for my experiences in Venezuela 10 years later. By then, I was no longer sympathetic to communism. But I nevertheless fell in with the Chavistas right away. I began recording interviews with them in the Plaza Bolivar ten years to the day after I arrived in Cuba for the first time. I traveled to Merida, where I befriended Chavistas at the ULA, University of the Andes, and found myself listening as they referred to the opposition as Esqualidos, or Quislings, Weaklings, the Squalid Ones. By using this point, he says I couldn't bring myself to do the same, and he says I just referred to them using neutral terms such as los opositos. Osporati- <laughs> sorry, los auspicion. Anyway, as the opposition. I'm sorry, I don't speak Spanish even when I try. During the year I lived in Merida, he says these linguistic assaults never registered as anything worth mentioning or noticing. They were just part of the rhetorical scenery of revolutionary politics. So, for nearly a decade, he says, I tolerated them even though I declined to participate. And when I met these oppositores, I found that they were as kind and generous and earnest as my Chavista friends, and occasionally more so. And then he says, One day I woke to the realization that I had been sleepwalking through a nightmare. I told the story of my growing disillusion with socialist utopianism elsewhere in these pages, how it finally turned, led me to turn to embrace Western liberalism. When vast, peaceful post-election protests against the imposition of new president Maduro in April 2013 were met with brutal state violence, I was forced to rethink everything. And he says that process is still ongoing. By the way, this is a perfect example of of someone who didn't sequester himself and hunker down on his mental bunker and, you know, treat every opposing idea that came at him as an act of violence directed against him. And look what happened. He says, what I didn't understand completely on July 4th became clear just seven days later when thousands, perhaps tens of 1000s we'll never know, since the Cuban dictatorship has such a powerful stranglehold on media, poured into the streets in a spontaneous rejection of the communist regime. President Miguel Díaz-Canel called out his police and paramilitaries to beat people back into their homes. Government agents have been preparing for years and apparently felt no compunction about attacking gusanos who hours before had simply been their neighbors. As Bosmajin observed, the distance between the linguistic dehumanization of a people and their actual a suppression and extermination is not great, Not great, rather. It is but a small step. They have, after all, been purged of their humanity, and in the good name of which they can now be repressed without pity. Man, that's a great cautionary tale. Some great first hand experience on this too. And maybe you know, I'm gonna i t- I'm gonna take this one step further because Here's, here's another point that I want to try to drive home. The very same tactics are being used against your fellow Americans. I don't care if it's the vaccine hesitant. I don't care if it's, you know, people who, you know, protest income tax. I don't care if it's people who, for whatever reason, I think of the Bundys, because, you know, this is a, another example of people who were willing to stand up for what they believed was true. Their behavior was peaceful. They maintained the moral high ground, but boy, are they hated for it. I'm sure that there are, you know, similar words through which uh, federal supremacists and their supporters refer to the Bundys. And, and here's a here's a good example of what this looks like right now. Uh, looking at this article in The Washington Post from Spencer Sue. U.S. seeks prison term for first felony defendant to be sentenced in capital breach, citing domestic terror threat. Now, I'm not excusing people who break things and beat people and otherwise use violence to get their way. And there were definitely some people, I mean, if you can believe the video footage you saw, there were definitely some people engaged in all of those activities on January 6th. Now, there were also hundreds of people who were not engaged in any particular violence, who pressed forward with the crowd and eventually were ushered into the Capitol By capital police officers who removed the barricades, waved them inside, who wandered around, took pictures, waved the flag, and then turned around and left. But about 500 have been arrested. And they're being charged with with some pretty serious things. I mean, felony charges? Really? For for trespassing? Because I've been keeping pretty close track here. Nobody has been charged with sedition. No one has been charged with treason. And yet if we're to believe the hype, well, but it was an insurrection and that's, uh, that's why we had, to, we had to do this in order to send this message. Actually, that's, that's the take that the federal government is taking right now. Prosecutors earlier this week urged a federal judge to impose an 18-month prison sentence on the first defendant to face sentencing for a felony in the January 6th Capitol breach. The reason why? Well, we need this to deter domestic terrorism. We need somebody to be made an example of. The need to deter others is especially strong in cases involving domestic terrorism, which the breach of the Capitol certainly was. (sighs) Special Assistant U.S. Attorney Mona Mona Sedke said in a government sentencing request for Tampa crane operator Paul Allard Hodgkins, a 38-year-old who carried a Trump flag into the well of the Senate. Now, that court filing marked one of the Justice Department's bluntest statements to date of its view of the Capitol breach in which members of a mob supporting President Donald Trump, along with perhaps some government assets, I mean, we, we don't know for sure that they weren't there, sure appears likely, assaulted nearly 140 police officers, forced the evacuation of a joint session of Congress meeting to confirm the results of the 2020 election, which, by the way, were still very much in question. Hodgkin's sentencing, scheduled for this coming Monday, could set the bar for what punishment a 100 or more defendants might expect to face as they weigh whether to accept plea offers by prosecutors or take their chances in a trial by jury. Roughly 800 people entered the building, according to U.S. officials, with more than 500 individuals charged to date and charges expected against at least 100 others. About 20 so far have pleaded guilty. One misdemeanor defendant has been sentenced to probation. In Hodgkin's case... Sedke cited FBI Director Christopher Ray's testimony in March to the Senate that the problem of homegrown violent extremism is metastasizing. Is it now? <laughs> With some actors growing emboldened by the Capitol riot. That attack, that siege was criminal behavior, plain and simple. And it's behavior that the FBI view as domestic terrorism. Ray told the Senate Judiciary Committee on March 2nd said he also asked us district judge randolph d moss of washington to recognize prior court findings that though individuals convicted of such behavior may have no criminal history their beliefs make them unique among criminals in the likelihood of recidivism especially if these guys believe that government should be limited or they believe that there may be a lack of legitimacy on the part of those who are claiming authority over them oh those are dangerous ideas and so they're they're looking to see how is this person's rehabilitation coming. In other words, have they changed their tune? Are they mouthing the necessary, you know, uh, fealty to those who are currently holding their lives in their hands? I don't know. That seems pretty Orwellian to me. So I guess we'll see. Hodgkin poses an intriguing example for defendants against whom prosecutors have threatened to seek an enhanced domestic terrorism penalty. If they were applied, they could more than double a defendant's guidelines range, although the judge would have a final say. They trespassed. Does this sound like justice in the case of trespassing? Hmm.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde
1: Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. These are the folks you want to talk to if you are looking to purchase a home, particularly if you are one of the many people moving to the Intermountain West, and specifically to Utah. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is located in St. George, Utah, at 619 South Bluff Street in Tower 1 and 2. Their NMLS ID is 715386. And yes, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Call 435-703-4522. Just know, when time counts, getting that financing in order so that you can pull the trigger. Now, when you find the home of your dreams... The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage are the ones you should be counting on. You'll find a link in the show notes at the com. So just one final note here on the federal prosecution of the people involved in the Capitol riot. I think that there's a lot of melodrama that goes into, um, you know, superseding indictments, you know, and, you know the, the way that the federal government prosecutes people. And typically they will overcharge to the point where, you know, the poor defendant is like, well, you know, they're offering me a plea deal instead of if I take it to jury trial and and I go up against this entity, which has almost unlimited time and resources to, you know, just keep coming at me again and again. You know, I could spend 30 years in jail or I could take a plea for a lesser charge and say, yes, I am guilty of this lesser charge and spend three years in prison instead. That's why there's like a 97 percent conviction rate. In federal criminal proceedings, but in this case, I don't know. There's just something reminiscent about this that that makes it. It sounds a lot like the overcharging that we saw in the aftermath of the Malheur wildlife occupation, as wildlife refuge occupation that is, as well as Bundy Ranch. And I'm not trying to draw a direct comparison. I'm just going to say, in both of those instances, juries acquitted. Many of these participants, because the feds so hopelessly overcharged and were found to be withholding evidence that they should have given up in discovery, they were also found to have uh, instigated and been provocateurs in some cases. That narrative just didn't hold up. And I just have to wonder, you know, for all the posturing that we see, well, this is just evidence of how dangerous these attitudes are. I know it feels like you and I, we're far removed from this, but you know what? Maybe we're not. I haven't done anything violent. You haven't done anything violent. But the thoughts we think, you know, the ones where we may question whether or not uh, people in government are being honest with us. Whether we can trust what the intel agencies are telling, you know, government leaders. Whether we can trust the FBI to be an impartial organization. Or a politicized police force. See, I I have serious doubts that uh, the election was as clean and pure and un, you know above reproach you know as as some people insist. I'm just thinking there there are some inconsistencies that I don't think have been adequately explained. Now that's simply my opinion. But I'll tell you what really gets my radar going is. The number of people in positions of power who are insisting, demanding, you cannot think this, you cannot speak of these things. Why? Because you undermine the very foundations of our democracy if you question the legitimacy of those who claim power to tell me what to do. Yes, I can see where that would be a huge concern for you. And yet that's exactly what I'm doing and what I'm encouraging other people to do. I guess the bottom line is this. Take it with a grain of salt. What you read about, all oh, these, uh, these rioters, these insurrectionists and so forth, so much of it was false and was never corrected. They beat police officers to death. Five people died. Nope. There were a couple people died of natural causes. Not because of the riots, but just in, they were there at the Capitol and died of natural causes. One of them, a Capitol Hill's police officer who died, or a Capitol uh, police officer who died a couple of days after from a stroke. But the only death that was caused in, you know, in or as a result of the Capitol riot was at the hands of a Capitol police officer who shot an unarmed protester without warning. Maybe she had it coming, maybe not, but gee, I don't know. In something other than clown world, there would be some kind of an inquiry. There'd be some kind of accountability. And maybe even a grand jury would be able to look at the evidence and say, did this officer respond properly? But we're not being allowed that. We're being told this is the most dangerous thing ever. You can't even think about these things. You can't even, if you were so much as there, whether you went into the Capitol or not, you've got government agents, you know, on your trail trying to track you down and intimidate you into you know, admit to you where you were. Tell us what you know. We want names. We want numbers. We want photos, whatever we can get. Yeah. Isn't that curious? The people who want to exercise greater and greater power over us are concerned that we're losing our trust in their legitimacy. And I wonder why that would be. Okay, I'm going to get off the soapbox here for a minute. All right, one final thing I wanted to share with you here. This is from Eric Peters. And if you are one of the people who's among the vaccine hesitant, first of all, I want to assure you, you are not alone. Best I can tell, we make up about one fourth of the population, but we're still numerous enough that they can't round us up and re-educate us, at least at this point. But Eric Peters has a question for the willing. And if you're not willing to draw your line in the sand right now regarding forced vaccines, at what point would you be willing to draw it? He says the hesitant, as people who aren't interested in trusting the pharmaceutical cartels or the government to keep them safe from a sickness that doesn't meaningfully threaten them, are being styled as, as, as they're being styled, have more than just that reason to eschew the vaccine that's being hard sold like a timeshare condo. He says it's a reason that goes beyond everything being discussed and yet isn't being discussed much, hence the importance of discussing it. And that reason is simply if they can do This, if they can do it this time, they can do it the next time and the time after that ongoing. So, your vaccine status, plural, to become public business. And he says, maybe you're okay with this shot. Okay, how about the next one? And the one after that, where does it end? It doesn't end. That's what's on the table. Why? Because precedents are everything. Lawyers live by this motto because that's how you win or lose cases. It's the basis upon which laws are passed and expanded and upon which appeals fall or stand. If it's decided in law that the government can force you to hand over 1% of whatever you earn, the principle has been encoded that it, has been encoded that it can force you to hand over the other 99%. The precedent has been established. All that remains going forward is haggling over the degree. The fundamental defining thing has been conceded. Now, similarly, if government can force people to submit to being injected with a vaccine by declaring it a public health necessity, it can force people to submit to being injected with any vaccine on the same basis. The precedent will have been set and the principle underlying it codified. Then it will be expanded. Think about what he's saying. I don't think he's wrong. That's how laws work in a legalistic system where legal precedent, what's called case law, supplants the natural law as imperfectly stated and reluctantly conceded by the tacking on of the Bill of Rights to the Constitution. Not the Constitution, which is a lawyerly document written purposely to establish a system of case law that would, in time, do away with the natural law conceptions articulated in the Bill of Rights. What was tacked on to the Constitution to appease men like George Mason of Virginia and others mistrustful of the Constitution makes no mention of anyone's rights but which is full of artful language about the powers the government shall have to modify, curtail, and ultimately dispense with those rights altogether. For instance, lawyerly language about the general welfare, which can and has been construed by lawyers to erode natural rights to the point that they're becoming, if they haven't already become, conditional privileges. And he says, it's also not by accident that life, liberty, and property became life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness which sounds wonderful precisely because it's poetry and not sense. How can one be happy when one's property, including the property one has in oneself, as in the sanctity of their own body, may be violated legally any time the law says so? Such ugly things are no longer taught precisely because of what it tells those who become aware of them about the nature of the system they are yoked to. And he says it's no longer the the law that is the violator of natural rights. Corporations are now arguably a much greater threat to them since they aren't even obliged to pass laws for that purpose. They can postulate policies, and these have the force and effect of laws in a system such as ours. Because corporations control practically all employment. And the peripheral things necessary to get employment, like banks, without which it's rather difficult to get paid by a corporate employer or even do business independently of corporate employment. It's a fantastic article. It is linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If you're finding value in this content, please tell a friend and subscribe to the podcast.